Okay, friends, uh, welcome to the show. Greg Kogel here, and this is a uh, off-schedule day, uh, which means that uh, I can't get calls because nobody knows I'm broadcasting, which is fine because I have calls here that you have offered um, with our open mic feature. And many of you know that means you can call in anytime you want and leave a question that I can then take as if you were calling me. So we hear your voice, I hear the question, and uh, the difference is, of course, I can't answer the question, but I can't interact with you, which is always um, a pleasure for me to do, and I like that the best. But this is a nice second best, and it really helps in days like this when I'm not uh, not in the studio on the day that I am, um, that I am, um, what do I want to say? I almost said that they am broadcasting. That's crazy. Of course I'm in the studio on the day I'm broadcasting. I'm not in the studio on the day that I normally broadcast. There we go. So um, I have a series of questions here that I will be uh, addressing. Incidentally, if you'd like to send me a question, and I realize some of you think, wait a minute, I sent a question four or five months ago. I haven't heard my call yet. Yeah, I'm still working through them. My apologies. Okay, and... Uh, I don't want to give anybody the short shrift if I have more to say about something, and I usually say it. Uh, I want to give some depth to my responses if I have something deep to say, which isn't always the case, but uh, frequently is. I have something more to say, actually. So you can go to our homepage, and under podcasts, I'll look for live podcasts then. So podcasts, then live podcasts, and there's uh, the feature details. You can follow the prompts there, or, or you can simply call. Dial in, 857-DIAL-STR, D-I-A-L-S-T-R, 857-DIAL-STR, or 857-342-5787, and uh, then, again, follow the prompts, and you can leave your question. Excuse me. So, uh, let's see. Let us go uh, with—I've been looking at this one from August— for a long time. He's only eight years old, but he asked a hard question, so I've been skipping over it. I figure, okay, time to, time to answer the eight-year-old and do my best to answer a very insightful question. So let's, uh, let's hear from August. My name is August. I am eight years old. My question is, why did God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden? giving Adam and Eve a chance to betray him. Well, thank you, August. And this is a a question I get in various forms at different times. It's a good question. Uh, But I think what a person may be assuming um, when they ask the question is that if God did not put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden and then tell Adam and Eve don't eat of that tree, then they would never have sinned because there would never be a tree there that they weren't supposed to eat. It almost seems like a temptation. Uh, I don't know, August, if your mom ever said, hey, don't touch that thing over there, or maybe your dad did. Well, the first thing you think about probably is what? You know, touching that thing, you know, because you're just told not to. Uh, And I understand that. And so sometimes it feels that way when we think about God making this boundary in the Garden of Eden and saying, saying, this isn't what you should be eating from. Now, Eve, when she is tempted, she tells Satan, the snake, 
that God said, don't even touch it. Well, God didn't say that. She kind of added that. But uh, the, the significant thing, important thing is that he did make a restriction. So why did he do that? And I, I don't think that um, not I don't think that making a restriction for Adam and Eve was a temptation to disobey. I think that happens with us. That's why I use the example of your mom or dad saying, "Don't touch that, August." And then we think, "Well, I don't, now I want to touch it." But I don't think that was the case with Adam and Eve. And the reason I don't think that was the case is because they were not sinners at the time. Now, I wrote a book called The Story of Reality, and maybe you've read it, (laughs) which you might have, because my daughter was reading lots of stuff at eight years old, and I suspect you are too, because you are so well-spoken when you asked your question. But in that book, I, I, I make a speculation. Now, a speculation is a kind of a guess, And when people ask questions that start the way yours did, why did God, or maybe they might have a question, why didn't God, those are hard questions to answer because usually God is the only one who knows the reason why he did or didn't do something. And in most cases, God hasn't told us the reason why he did or didn't do something. In this case, he hasn't told us why he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and then told Adam and Eve not to eat from that tree. Now, uh, in in the book, uh, Story of Reality, I do make a kind of educated guess. I think about it and I think, well, here might be a reason. So keep in mind, this is just a guess. I don't know for sure. It makes sense to me but it might not be correct. And that is, this was an opportunity to test our first parents, Adam and Eve, to see whether they would obey God or not. Of course, if you don't have something you're not supposed to do, then you don't have any opportunity to obey and not do it, right? So if you want to be show your parents that you are an obedient child, August, you have to have some some rules that you're supposed to obey and, and uh, rules that you're supposed to keep. And then when you do what your parents tell you you're supposed to do, then you're an obedient child. But if there are no rules, there's nothing to obey. And so you can't show that you are an obedient child. I think something like this may have been going on in the garden, where God gives an opportunity to show obedience to him by not doing what he told them not to do, eat from the tree. That's my suspicion. I'm not sure, but I suspect it's something like that. If there were no restrictions whatsoever, it wouldn't make any sense to say that Adam and Eve were obedient children to God because they could do whatever, no restraints, no restrictions. But if God wanted to test them to see if they would be faithful to him, to see whether they would be obedient to them, then he needed to give them 
some rule to obey. And he did that with the tree, and they didn't obey, as you know. And, of course, that created a lot of problems. And so here's a little additional piece of information that might um, you might want to think about. When God tells us not to do something, and then we do it, it creates problems. We get ourselves into a mess. Now, uh, that's not just God. It's also with your parents, because God gave us parents to help us to learn how to live um, before we are old enough to make those decisions for ourselves. And so he gave us parents that will put boundaries around us. And just saying, if we disobey our parents in something, if, even if it doesn't make sense at the time, lots of times it, something gets broken, okay, um, and something bad happens. There's a bad result because you—not just because you disobeyed, that's bad, but you disobeyed something they told you to do that was important to keep you safe in some other way, okay? So it's kind of like a seatbelt. Think about a seatbelt in your car. So um, mom and dad say, put your seatbelt on. Well, you need to obey them. But it isn't just because they said that. I mean, you need to obey them because they said it. They're the authority God put in your life. But they know something maybe that you don't realize that putting the seatbelt on is is safer for you. It will protect you. And so if you disobey, it could be that your dad, if he's driving, has to stop fast, and then you might get tossed around in the car and get hurt. So it's good that you put the seatbelt on. So the same way God puts seatbelts on for people. And we don't always, by giving them commands, and your parents do also, and we don't always understand the reasons why he gives the commands that he does, just like we don't always understand why our parents give us the commands that they do. Uh, but they see things that we don't see when we're children. And so I'm just saying, one thing that we know about God's working in the garden is that he He gave them an oper- a, a, a boundary um, that they were to live in. And when they disobeyed, it was bad that they disobeyed, but it also caused something bad for all the rest of mankind. There was a result, a consequence to that. And uh, so, and now we see it, we live with it. Um, and so that means the application then is that for us, whether we're younger and obeying our parents or whether we're older and just obeying God directly, I should say when we're faced with commands from our parents or faced with commands from God directly as older, uh, we still need to obey them even when we don't understand them because they are there for our good. And if we disobey, bad things are going to happen sooner or later. That's the way it usually works. So that's why it's good to trust God. I hope that was helpful. I don't know entirely why God uh, decided to put that particular boundary, but um, but I have the suspicion that I shared with you. It's a way of showing that we are faithful to the God who made us, 
And uh, in your own situation, it's also a way of showing that we are faithful and obedient to our parents who love us. Thank you for the question, August. That was a really good one. All right, let's uh, let's see what the next one is on my list. I got to get rid of this first page. It's been sitting here for months. People are wondering what the heck. Where did my question go? Um, 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 um. Okay, let's just do Marie because she's been sitting here for a long time. I'm not sure if I have much to say to her uh, regarding Quaker schools, but we'll see. Marie. Greg. Hi. Um, I'm going through the interview process for a leadership role at a K through 12 school with Quaker philosophies. Um, I don't really know much about Quakerism, but it looks like beliefs range dramatically from Protestant leaning to atheistic. Um, when I looked at the school's website, it outlines Quakerism principles like simplicity, peace, integrity, community, equality, and stewardship. Um, they seem pretty benign, but it also discusses a meeting of worship that students engage in weekly. Um, noticeably, there is no talk of typical Christian language or Jesus, though. Um, my overall question to you is, what kind of considerations do I need to take into account that will inform me as I move through this interview process? Hmm. Um, I want to avoid the potential of being asked to advance a belief system or worldview that I don't adhere to. Um, I'm unsure how to navigate this opportunity because I don't think the school exactly fits as a secular or faith-based school, and I don't want to veer into culty territory. Hmm. Um, any considerations would be helpful. Okay. Thank you, uh, Marie. Uh, Jay Marie, it says here. So, um, well, first thing I'm thinking is that you're in this process, but you probably gave me the question four months ago, and <laughs> now maybe you're way past this circumstance. Um, Quaker, uh, Quakers, um, are, are Quaker, uh, religion, Quaker Christianity is a noble, um, uh, version of Christianity uh, taken historically. It's hard to know where any of these groups stand now. Well, kinds of groups that are, are Protestant type groups where they stand theologically, because there's been a lot of variation. Quakers were characteristically pacifists, and this is what um, was— there were a lot of Quakers during the colonial time, and uh, and they had, you know, they were a denomination of, of Christianity. I, I don't really know much about the distinctives of their theology, all the things that you mentioned uh, were virtues that they promote, which would be— virtues of any Christian denomination that cared about virtue. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong there, um, just an alert that Quakers, uh, more than anything else, are known for their pacifism. So they think that um, violence is wrong, and uh, certainly taking human life is wrong. In fact, I think, uh, wasn't that movie, uh, Hacksaw Ridge, about that soldier uh, in the Second World War, the Pacific Theater. Wasn't he a Quaker? He might have been a Quaker. I'm not sure. He certainly was a pa pacifist. All right. But that's how that plays out in practical terms. But uh, there are a lot of people who are pacifists and fine Christians. It's, uh, in my view, except for that particular point. I don't think it's a benign view. I think it's wrong. It's false. And I think it's dangerous. But I, I think it's held held uh, with good conscience by lots of people. 
So I'm not taking, you know, I'm not berating them. But so that's one thing. Now, you mentioned something about being atheistic, and I'm not sure if, if there was actual evidence of atheism or was it just that nothing about God or Jesus was mentioned in their standards. And uh, it could very well be, though, that they're committed as Christians themselves, but don't make those kinds of um, requirements of the students, nor do they view themselves as a religious parochial school, maybe a private school, but not so much religious. They are Quakers who uh, operate a school for, you know, the students and follow these basic general principles that are not controversial in culture. Uh, and it's good to see that. However, um, the things that are controversial, and which may be their own sectarian views, uh, they they don't necessarily major in that or inculcate those into their students. And so now they're just being kind of a large temp, tent <clears throat> as an, an educational enterprise. Now, um, <clears throat> I don't know what their particular views are uh, theologically, and the best way to find that out is just to ask them. So do you understand your school to be teaching just virtuous concepts to the kids, or as um, Quaker Christians, are you trying to invest some kind of spiritual life to them? And the spiritual life, if so, is that kind of a mere Christianity spiritual life, or is that Quaker Christianity spiritual life? The only way you're going to find that out is by asking them. So I'd suggest you do that. I'm not sure what role that you are applying for. And again, my, my suspicion is this: the, the timing, <laughs> the moment has passed for uh, getting my response on this issue is probably resolved. And my apologies for that. Maybe we can, Amy, you keep an eye on these things that come down and something that really, seems really timely. I'll try to put it at the head of the class um, like this one. But in any event, um, so... In that circumstance, you just ask, what, what, is, what is your intention? What is your background? What is your Christian commitment? And how, how deeply do you intend to have that influence the educational life of the students? And just see what they say. Uh, I think they were called Quakers, and uh, I'm not entirely sure, so I'm looking at Amy to see if I get an amen on this one, or a thumbs up, or a right on, or whatever you want to do it. Uh, it would be, be Kyle to do the right on. But uh, I think Quakers are called Quakers because they have these meetings that are lack leadership, uh, centralized leadership. They all get together and they wait for the Holy Spirit to move. And that's sometimes the Holy Spirit's moving and they have emotional utterances and, and, and physical manifestations of quaking. And that's why they call them Quakers. Is that, oh, okay, Amy's. Amy. I hire you for a reason. All right. Now, she's shrugging her shoulder like, I don't know what's going on here. So, okay. All right. All right. Neither do I, though, so I can't really blame her. But th this is a recollection I have. I, uh, my su I suggest you just look up Google Quakers, you know, and see something. But I think that's some of that. So that would give them to a little bit more of an experiential emotionalism in their in their Christian grounding. And uh, But I could be mistaken about that. So, um, there you go. <laughs> Best I can do. What is that, like six minutes? She's been waiting six months, and she gets six lousy minutes. 
All right. Uh, let's go to um, hmm, next one. I'm going down the line. I'm taking the oldest first, if I can. How would you respond to claims that? Oh, okay. Um, this is an. Uh, this is all right. Um, no, no um, editorial comments yet. I'll just. This is Diamond, um, and the question is about um, the biological development of men, prenatal. All right. Hey, Greg. Uh, thank you for answering this question. Uh, but so I recently came across a YouTube short video where the person claimed that all biological men start off as females in the womb. And therefore, not only can men be women, but all men are actually trans. And this does not seem right. But on top of that, he also said that if you want to argue that it is because that doesn't matter till conception or till uh, birth, then life doesn't actually start at conception. Hmm. How would you argue these points without... Um, making that category error and where can I go to find more information myself to look deeper into this? Thank you for uh, your time and thank you for this ministry of helping people like myself grow. Well, you're welcome, Diamond. I appreciate the question. It's a very interesting question. Um, but you started out on a very positive note. Thank you for answering this question. Well, I'm not answered it yet. I'm just taking it um, that you have high hopes for me. I appreciate that. Uh, this is easier to take in reverse. If sex is not determined later in life, if if the if the sexual issue is not in a well, it says determined or resolved until later, then life doesn't really begin at conception. This is a just a radical non sequitur. I, I don't understand how you get from sex not being determined until later that life doesn't really begin at conception. Are we to assume that life only begins when your sex is determined biologically? And incidentally, how does the sex get determined biologically? Well, there's a process of biological development where certain sexual organs present themselves in such a way that one can draw the conclusion whether this particular individual is a male or a female by looking at the physical development. But how does one physically develop to that point where sex is evident if they're not alive? <laughs> the only way you can develop the appearance of sexual organs is if you're growing and your cells are dividing, and your body is forming, and only a living organism is going to do this. This isn't just a kind of collective accretion of stuff that's sticking together, you know, like you get a a boat on a, well, this isn't even a good illustration because barnacles are living, but, you know, you got a boat sits in the water long enough, then barnacles and, and other stuff kind of stick to the hull. Well, this isn't what we're talking about. There's just stuff that kind of floats by and sticks. This is the development of a human being from one stage to another. 
Is it growing? Then it's alive. That's all you need to know. If it's growing, then it's alive. And of course, I mean specifically biological growth here. <clears throat> I mean, uh, but uh, crystals grow, stalagmites grow. They're not alive, but that's that's simply an accretion of stuff that sticks to other things. You know, that's how you get stalagmites and stalactites. Stalactites tight to the ceiling. Stalagmites, so they might reach to the ceiling. Stalagmites are the, the bottom, tights are at the top. That's how you distinguish the two. In any event. So this is this is a living thing. It is growing biologically. When does that unique living thing start growing? And incidentally, in the process of of uh, reproduction, there is no stage of non-life. You have a living sperm and a living egg that unite to create a separate entity, but is still alive, a living zygote. The sperm and the egg were alive. They joined together, and what they create uniquely is also alive. Now, the sperm and egg disappear into a different identity of the two joining together, but life is continuous throughout. The question is, when does unique life begin? And, of course, everybody knows, and I say that because it ought to be common knowledge, but you can just, <laughs> um, just look at any college grade school textbook, on embryology and reproduction, they all say the same thing. Individual unique life begins at conception. An individual human being comes into being at the moment of the union of the egg with the uh, sperm, and when those two gametes um, join, they form a new thing, a new human being. Now, that's not philosophy. That's not religion. That's science. Does not have anything to do with when sexual parts become visible. And because uh, they don't become visible for quite a while through development. Oh, hey, maybe six or eight or ten weeks. I don't know when they do the ultrasound and they see the, you know, the apple core and say it's a boy or whatever. So, um, nevertheless, the life of the individual is not determined by the presence of any particular morphological structure. It is growing and developing its structures because it's already a living thing. So the second half of that's actually quite easy to, to resolve. And I just, I don't even understand the thinking of someone says if the sex is not determined until later and life doesn't really begin at conception. Now, but here, here the thing is, is the presumption that sex is not determined until later. Uh, men don't start off as females in the womb, and therefore all men are actually trans. This is the transcription of what you said, and you, gather, you know, that was given to me by Amy. Well, if men aren't men, then what are we calling them men for? If biological men start out as females— in the womb, okay, that means they become men. If they are biological men after they start out as females, I'm just taking the statements at face value, and this is what somebody's claiming, then they are men. But they haven't always been men. They first were females. So, so just the way the question is stated indicates that the men are still men. 
They're not women. Now, what about this biological development? Well, the answer is, whatever things look like early on is not the determinant of their sex. Their sex is determined by genetic uh, elements driven by the living nature of the being that then, of necessity, produce particular external organs. They produce male organs, ultimately, because they were always men to begin with, even though at the earliest stages of their development, they, uh, they, they let's see, I'm looking for it. That there, are, that there, are, that they, they look like they might be female. I've heard this comment before, but I don't know all of the, all of the biological details. But they're not relevant. What this, it's, it's not relevant. What something looks like to the eye through the process of development. Okay, if some, if if a, if a, if a, uh, a developing embryo does not have anything hanging between its legs at one stage, and a female doesn't have anything, any sexual organs between her legs, ever, that doesn't mean that at that stage the embryo is female and then develops these organs between its legs to become a him, and that makes him a male. No, it is because he is a he, a male, that eventually, in the process of development, those organs present themselves. Now, there was a guy back in the 19th century, his name was Ernst Haeckel, H-A-E-C-K-E-L, I think, and very popular in support of Darwinism because he made the claim that there was a what, call, what he called a recapitulation Kind of a, a kind of going through the stages of human evolutionary development that w- took place in embryonic development in the womb. So, on the Darwinian view, maybe there was you know we start out a single cell, then they develop into something else that's maybe kind of like a fish, and then they grow a tail, then they lose a tail, and then they look more like what we understand humans to look like right now. And this is called embryonic recapitulation. That is, it's reliving its evolutionary history in its embryonic development. And there was even a stage, according to Heckel, where they had what he called pharyngeal gill slits. So look at here's a stage where you see the gills. There's the gills. And that's just a kind of the organism's genetic memory of of course, this is before they knew about genes, but Heckel was. But you know, of of its memory of its time when the organism in evolutionary history was a fish. Now, for some reason, this really caught on, and it sounds ludicrous to me that that an organism would have a memory of its embryonic development, uh, and therefore just goes through these embryonic stages. I don't know, does it go through a lizard stage before it comes to the male? I don't know. See, But it turned out this is all completely spurious. It's, to me, it's silly on its face. But as it turned out, these 
these images were doctored by Heckel and he's thoroughly discredited, made it look more like his idea. And I think there it is, even if it was as he says, the pharyngeal gill slits, well, they're not slits and they're not gills. You know, it's just how he characterized it because it kind of fit this narrative. And it seems so, oh, wow, there it is. But uh, there's no reason to, to believe that the organism would remember its history and then, you know, go through these stages, <clears throat> for one. <clears throat> Secondly, that individual was a human being at every single stage. And what, what seems to be um, illicit is to um, is to somehow I, I, I look at any given stage and draw fanciful conclusions about identity from a stage. Well, it looks like a female it goes through a female stage and then becomes a male. That's the argument. So we're all kind of trans, sort of. All right. And my response is, wait, why don't we just say we're all kind of fish? What do you mean? Well, you could look at one or shrimp. That would be better. You look at a certain stage of the embryonic development, it looks like a shrimp. They're just kind of all curled around, kind of a shrimp-like. So the fact is, we are all kind of shrimps. And uh, we eventually develop, you know, into kind of looking more human, but there's this hidden shrimp inside. So we would just always have to say, we must be shrimps. Because keep in mind, on this argument, whatever looks like f being female at one stage, having having undifferentiated organs, and as I recall the biology of that, this is the way it is. You, you, you start out with something very similar. Then as the parts are added, as the genes are developing, you know, there becomes distinctive features based on the actual sex of the individual. And just like there are distinctive features that are human, that make it look less than a sh like a shrimp because the genetic structures are driving this development in virtue of the fact that this is not a shrimp. It's a human being. And the human being um, who eventually has male genitalia is not first a female. It just is going through these stages. Okay. So uh, uh, to me, this is... This is um, this is a mountain being made out of a molehill. It's a misunderstanding of the nature of development, okay? Men do not start off as females. That, that rather there is a, men are still men. They're males, which is why they end up looking like males. Just like a human zygote is human, not a shrimp, which is why that zygote, when it develops through fetal stages, begins looking more like what it actually is, a human being. At, and when I say looks more like a human being, just to qualify this, that shrimp-like looking fetus was still looking exactly like all human beings look like at that stage of development. And as human, uh, as all living things grow and develop, they start taking on different features, and they look different at one stage of development than the other. That's, you know, an acorn's not an oak. Really? What is it? It's a seed. What kind of seed? It's an oak seed. So there's a acorn is a oak in a seed stage, and then the mature oak is an oak in a mature stage, but it's just, they're still both oaks. The fact that, the, that in human development, that particular uh, genitalia 
emerge out of the development shows that they were that sex from the beginning, regardless of what the morphology showed at earlier stages of development. And if you don't accept that, then you're just going to have to accept accept that we used to be shrimp. And now we're something else, but that shrimp is still in there. We're all basically shrimp. It's just silly. Pardon me for using that characterization, but it is. It's an accurate one. Silly. So that, I think, would... would, um, deal with this trans thing. By the way, I don't expect, you know, a person who would offer this challenge uh, to be persuaded um, because it's not a cogent justification, okay? We're all actually trans, really. Uh, We were all actually shrimp, too, on that line of thinking. And I'm not trying to be disparaging and make fun. I'm trying to just apply this consistently, and if the first one, if if the if if the the illustration I'm making the consistent application is 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 silly, then the other one's silly too for the same reasons. Okay, there you go, Diamond. Hope that's helpful. Um, let's see. Okay, so I'm I'm supposed to have reviewed all of these beforehand. Did I do two? I've already done Matthew. I did the eight-year-old. Yeah, I I did the second question first. Yeah. Well, you weren't paying attention. Yeah, that's why I got that. <laughs> she was talking to the bearded beast. All right. So, Eliana, let's see. Are the parallels between the Bible and the stories of Gilgamesh, Horus, evidence of the Bible? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Eliana. Back to Genesis. Hi, my name's Eliana. And I had a question in regards to the story of Gilgamesh and also the story of Horus in terms of parallels from the Bible and um, their validity. Uh, We have one child that is um, currently not walking in the faith, and she uses those two stories as part of her reason why she doesn't think that the Bible is completely and uh, totally uh, the book of truth. So... Anyway, whatever input you have or insight, I would really greatly appreciate it. I didn't know quite how to answer her question. I've never looked into those stories in depth to know enough to give her an eloquent answer. So um, any feedback would be really appreciated. Thank you so much, guys. Um, Everybody there, God bless you. Thank you, Ileana. This is uh, a good question, and um, it does come up at different times. By the way, in the book of Proverbs, um, there are Proverbs that we find in the book of Proverbs that are virtually exact copies of the wisdom literature of the Amenemope. It's called the Wisdom of the Amenemope, okay? And like the Gilgamesh epic, I don't know about the Horus. I know who Horus is, but I don't know about the story itself. But the Gilgamesh epic is one that's raised more frequently. Um, uh, you have uh, creation accounts. You have details that uh, are, are are in biblical literature that seem to reflect literature that probably, maybe historically, preceded the time that the biblical accounts were written down. And uh, Moses, uh, during say around fifteen hundred BC, um, penned the book of the Pentateuch. All. Five books of the uh, of the law and etc. The 
the books of Moses and uh, Genesis, of course, the first one, um, has these similarities. Okay, now the question, there are two questions, actually. I mentioned then you see a similar thing in the book of Proverbs. The question is whether there's a literary relationship between them. Did one book borrow from the other, presumably the older from the younger? No, the new, the younger from the older, all right? The oldest one, the recent one borrowing from the older one, um, which presumably is Moses borrowing from Gilgamesh, okay? Um, is there a literary relationship and what does that say about the well the way you put it Ileana, is the truth of the book the truth value is it speaking factually um and i think some people even raise the question of divine authorship how could it be a divinely authored book if some other books have the same stuff in them before the bible and I think both are are easy to answer as a um, at least as an objection. I don't think this is necessarily a problem. It doesn't mean that the Bible is the authoritative book it claims to be. I'm not making that argument. I'm just parrying a challenge. What follows from the fact that there are accounts from other other uh, religious writing that are similar uh, to the Genesis account of creation? And <clears throat> excuse me. Um, what I this to me is, is similar to the charge that there are flood accounts that are part of the traditions of uh, you know all kinds of mythologies around the world. Right? They talk about this great flood, and some of them are very very similar. Some of them are a little bit different, but they seem to fall into the same class. So, what best explains this? All of these class of things. Is there a literary relationship between them? Well, I think in the case of Proverbs, there definitely is a literary relationship. So the writer of Proverbs has this wisdom, okay, um, and takes this wisdom and writes it down for people to benefit from. And this is a book that, that uh, in the classical way of understanding, is inspired by God. Why does it have to be absolutely unique in order to qualify for inspiration? What if there's something that's really sound? How about this? A stitch in time saves nine. <laughs> well, that's not Amenemope. That's Franklin, <laughs> I think. But is it is it a word of wisdom? Yeah. Okay, well, if it's a word of wisdom, what's wrong with that showing up in God's book of wisdom, if it, in fact, is wise? And I don't know what that would be wrong. Point being, if there, even if there is a literary relationship, and there are writings from before the time of the biblical book, Proverbs in this case, that have validity to them, that are wise, why is it a difficulty if Solomon seizes on that and puts it in his own writings? I don't see any difficulty at all. Because our claim to um, the Scripture being divinely inspired doesn't mean that our claim has to be that the thing that is written there has to be somehow novel. Um, there are things that—okay, so Jesus makes a reference 
to uh, a some kind of disaster in Jerusalem where a tower fell over and killed a bunch of people. Can't remember the details. Let's just say that that showed up in some other writing of the time because maybe it was significant, and somebody said, "Hey, this thing is this thing. This showed up here in Josephus or whatever before it showed up in the Gospels." So therefore, what? It's false. No, it doesn't make any sense. What we would say is their corroboration. We have this account in one place, in the mouth of Jesus here, identifying this particular event, and then here's somebody else, Josephus. Now, it's not in Josephus, because he wrote later in the first century, but I'm just using it as, a, as an example. Then, then we wouldn't say—we we would say, call that corroboration. <laughs> we would call that, like, a mistake— or evidence against it. So now, the, I'm just laying a, a, a kind of a conceptual framework how to understand, say, Genesis and uh, Gilgamesh, all right? Let's just say—let um, me back up. I, 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 I mentioned the, the flood, so I'm going to say that first before we get to Gil, Gilgamesh, okay? What's the best explanation for the fact that there are all these accounts around the world about a great flood, even though they differ in some means, measure from each other. Um, in 1966, um, I was in high school in Chicago. There was a huge blizzard. I mean, school got canceled. It's not like the Southern California. It rains. It, oh, school's canceled, you know. The sun's out. Oh, it's too hot. School's canceled. You know, there's... This we we had school unless you could not physically get to the location. You have a blizzard and the roads are completely blocked. Okay, well guess what? I still had track practice. <laughs> I still had to figure out a way to get to school to have track practice. That was indoor, but uh, anyway, uh, that was a mighty J- Joe Newton who required that. A famous track coach in cross country. Anyway, he, but we found a way. But you know what? It was a big big uh, blizzard. And um, I imagine that, you know, kids would hear from their dads that they outlived the blizzard of 19, what, 66 uh, or 67, whatever year I gave it. it might have been January of 67. And uh, and they're, they're going to talk about this. And some are going to talk about drifts that were three feet high. Some are going to talk about drifts that are 10 feet high. Some will say the freeways are all shut down. Some may say, well, one freeway is open. You're going to get a variation of this. Now, what best explains this? Do you think the best way to explain it is grandpas have this habit of inventing blizzards, stories about blizzards? Or maybe they're all remembering the same blizzard. But because it's human memory and whatever, stories change over time, they don't remember it exactly the same way. And uh, that second explanation seems to make the most sense to me. So now let's come back to the flood stories. The reason there's so many flood stories is there probably was a flood. And therefore, it gets, it, it gets, it gets lodged in the historical memory of different cultures, which tell the story of the Great Flood. And as time goes on, maybe it gets embellished and shifts or whatever. So the best explanation for lots of flood stories, is that there actually was a flood that is recorded in the book of Genesis. Um, people say, oh, no, the flood didn't happen. Oh, every culture has a flood story. And it's dismissive. I say, why, do I, why does every culture, culture have a flood story? Maybe there was a flood. 
that every culture remembers in some measure. Now, the same thing, same principle, I'm just working structurally here back to Gilgamesh. And um, let's, let's just say that the world actually was created the way that Moses describes it in Genesis. And let's just say that Moses is accurate. Now, Moses is, is penning his, his characterization of that account at a particular point in time. Why would we think that no one else, no culture, no belief system or whatever, would have any sense of any of this kind of thing happening lodged in its, in its, in its, in its oral history, so to speak? Why would we? Why would we? If it really happened that way, probably some people would have told stories about it, and it would be passed down like that. And what's going to happen over time? Those stories get a little distorted, and so it might be then that that story was written down uh, as the Gilgamesh epic before Moses wrote his story down. But that doesn't mean he borrowed from that story, though he might have. Just like in Proverbs. There were things that were lifted out of Amenemope and put there in Proverbs. So what? The, the fact that one would borrow from the other to explain what actually took place does not undermine its truthfulness at all. And there are a host of things that were written about some event that um, are veridical characterizations of it, but uh, it, there are competing characterizations of that event, and some people will borrow from other things, but it doesn't mean that it didn't happen, and the characterization is not accurate. Now, if there's a conflict between the two, they, on some detail, they can't both be right, if there's a genuine conflict. But that doesn't mean they're both just frivolous, and it doesn't mean they're, neither are true, <clears throat> and it doesn't undermine the, the, uh, <clears throat> the claim to divine authorship of one of the accounts, in this case Genesis, because we know that, I mean, it, it, the, the Bible is written by men, human beings, okay, which means it's going to, it, by our doctrine, by our understanding of inspiration, it's going to have human characteristics that you see there. You can tell the difference between Moses' writing and Isaiah's writing, you, just like you can between John and Paul. It's Joanine or Pauline. They have a different style. They use different vocabulary, and uh, th they have a different voice, if you will. So th that doesn't mean that it can't be God, because it's got to all be God's voice, whatever that sounds like. No, th there, there is there is no there is nothing at stake here. And for someone to make an issue of it, it's interesting to talk about this and make the comparisons and speculate. But I I don't see how either the truthfulness of our account or the divine authorship of our account is undermined by the similarities between, say, Proverbs and the wisdom of Amenemope or Genesis and the Gilgamesh epic, okay? I, I just don't see it. Now, of course, that doesn't demonstrate that Gilgamesh or Genesis are accurate characterizations of what took place. That's a different issue. All I'm saying is that just because they're similar doesn't mean that that what what they are reporting on never happened. And it actually doesn't mean that that our report isn't more accurate than an earlier report. Remember, our claim is that God had something to do with the integrity 
of the report. Again, that has to be defended, but but um, but it's part of the picture. And if you have an old thing coming down, and it's all passed down as it gets distorted over time, and then God steps in and says, here's the way it really happened, well, then it very well could be that way that it happened. And we have to assess whether the things that were written have the earmarks of of, uh, of fingerprints of God, as it were. <clears throat> that's a separate issue, all right? But if you're just looking at Gilgamesh and the New Testament—I'm sorry, and, and Genesis, you're just looking at those two epics, you see these comparisons, whatever. Um, it does suggest a literary relationship, which there might have been. No problem, just like in Proverbs. It might be that they are both reporting the same event with the same language because that's the way the thing happened. And in both cultures, there's an ability to explain what really took place. That's another explanation. But it seems to me there's no good reason to think that uh, that just because there are these similarities that um, that the accounts are not true, which I think is the way the question was put. It's not a true book. By the way, taking the book as a whole, that's is it a true book? I mean, that's uh, how many chapters of Genesis? I don't know, maybe forty or fifty or something like that. Well, that's that. There's more to it than that. But uh, right now, the question is the creation account and uh, whether that is true. And then you got to look at the other issues as well. And the other issues, most of the starting in chapter, especially post flood, you're really talking about very straightforward kind of historical claims. And, to, and indeed, when you get to Abraham in chapter 11, I guess, then the Abrahamic contract in chapter 12, now you've got something very, very concrete in terms of the claims that are being made of an historical nature. And what's really critical about understanding that is that the rest of the Bible, the account of God's working to solve the problem of evil, that the whole Bible is all about. It's part of our story, and our story is not over yet, as one my daughter's teachers said long ago. I thought it was a great way of putting it. Um, that whole, whole our whole story is about resolving the problem of evil, and and uh, in in Genesis is the book of beginnings, so it's meant to tell us not everything that happened, but the things that were most important to the storyline that we find collectively in the you know, 66 books uh, that are collectively known as the Bible. It's a, it's a library of books, okay? So um, we, 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 the beginning is important. The beginnings are important because the book, the Bible is meant to give an answer regarding the problem of evil. It's not always couched in those terms. This is what it amounts to. What happened? What went wrong, and how do we fix it? So, as the book of beginnings, Genesis tells how how the world happened in very general terms, and who is responsible for it, beginning of the universe, and the beginning of humankind, which is the subject of the entire book. Not the main player, the main player is God, but the humankind is the subject, and then something went wrong. You know, and uh, this is like you know conflict, right? So every story starts out with a beginning, and then you got conflict, and then you ultimately have conflict resolution. But the most of the story is about how that conflict gets dealt with, 
and how the characters deal with it. That's what we have. The whole story of reality is dealing with the conflict and then ultimate resolution at the end. But it can't be just a myth, because remember, this book is meant to explain beginnings. And um, if a young, if a boy looked at his dad who had a long scar on the side of his cheek, and he said, Dad, where did that scar come from? And he said, well, son, once upon a time, <laughs> well, the boy's going to know that he's not going to get the answer he was asked for the question he was asking, because he doesn't want to know a fairy tale. He wants to know what actually took place in the history of that his dad's life that caused this visible scar on his face. And uh, the, 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 the planet, <laughs> the cosmos is scarred. The question that we're asking is, where did that come from? How did that happen? We all know this, by the way. doesn't matter where you live or when you live. Something's wrong with the world. Where did the scar come from? Genesis tells us that. If it doesn't tell us that, it doesn't tell us anything important. But it goes on and says, here's how to fix it. And that's the rest of the story. All right, I hope that was helpful. Elena. Elena. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give him Hammond. Bye-bye now.